The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Our meditation from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Galatians today comes mainly from chapter 1, but I'm also going to read a couple of verses from the conclusion of the epistle. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, you will hear in this text how alarmed, how concerned, how hmm, angry, with loving parental anger, the Apostle Paul is. Galatians 1, 6 to the end of the chapter. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then here these verses from chapter 6. We looked at these a bit a couple of weeks ago where Paul talks about the motives of the Judaizers who were deflecting the Galatians into a different gospel, which is no gospel. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me 
to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Join your hearts with me as we ask God to write these words on our hearts. Father, we can hear the passion, the alarm, the outrage in the voice of your apostle as he thinks of people who are dissuading your children from resting and trusting in Jesus alone. And we ask you that you would show us the utter poverty that we bring before you, but also the utter sufficiency that Christ provides to us by your good gift. Unmask us of any pretensions that we can be or do good enough to please you or be acceptable in your sight. And as you unmask us, then assure us and embrace us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we began our fall meditations on Galatians, that epistle, as I mentioned, that the Apostle Paul talked about betrothing to himself as his own Katie von Bora, uh, by looking at some of the symptoms throughout the letter that Paul identified of dehydration, spiritual dehydration, people who are thirsty for grace and may not even know it, people like the Judaizers who were trying to persuade Gentile Christians that they needed to toe the line and keep the Torah in order to be assured that the promises promised to Abraham belonged to them as well. People like apparently some of the Galatian Christians who were being deflected from their resting in Jesus. And yeah, people like us who are sometimes thirsty for grace too and may not even know it. The symptoms we saw were pride, boastful pride, fear of man, hypocrisy, competitive conflict, joyless slavery. And now we're going to begin to look at the remedy. And the first remedy is to be unmasked by grace. I was thinking as we're thinking about the Reformation, about the five solas of the Reformation, those five alones that set the reformers apart from the church in which they had been raised. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is the supreme divine rule for what we believe and how we live. Not Scripture and, not Scripture and church, tradition, leadership, but Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone rescues us. God's grace alone rescues us from sin and condemnation. Not grace and our grace-enabled efforts to do better, but grace alone. Sola fide, God ties us to Christ by faith alone, not faith and our works, but faith alone. In Christ alone, solus Christus, Christ alone is sufficient. And then soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory since he's the only savior. Not worship to God and veneration to saints, but glory to God alone as the supreme author of salvation. In a sense, Luther, Luther, Paul, even better than Luther, touches on all these solas here. Uh, and, and in a certain sense, he's talking about sola scriptura and the, in his autobiography at the beginning here. He talks, as you heard, about the traditions in which he'd been raised, which were certainly informed by scripture, by the Old Testament, but significantly elaborated upon by rabbinic traditions. He was zealous for those. And he also emphasizes that what changed him was not a shift of tradition, 
but the revelation of God. He begins the letter by emphasizing that he is an apostle. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then in the text we just heard in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, I want you to know that this gospel, this message, is not according to man. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul belabors that because he knows that the gospel that Christ gave him to preach challenged the traditions in which he himself had been so zealous and that now the Judaizers were imposing on the Gentile Christians. But Paul says, the gospel came to me and humbled me, unmasked me, showed me that my devotion to tradition could not commend me to God. And so he comes, as you heard, uh, pretty strong here. Uh, he's, he's passionate. He's angry. It's, it's the parental anger of a mom that sees her four-year-old wandering out into traffic and grabs his hand and gives him a swat to get impressed upon him. Don't go into danger. That's, that's a sort of what Galatians is. It's a parental swat. Don't go with the Judaizers. That's the way of death. So Paul says a lot of things that are pretty shocking to the Galatians. You heard it in the first chapter. If anyone tells you any other, any other good news than this real good news, let him be accursed, anathema, twice. Chapter 3 says everybody who relies on keeping the law is under a curse. That would have shocked Saul before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. He thought keeping the law was the way that you avoided curse and gained God's approval. 512, he gets even a little bit more shocking. I wish that those people who want to commit, to, want to impose circumcision on you would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Woo, wow. Tell us what you really think, Paul. You know, stop mincing words. But maybe the most shocking thing he says is what he said, what we heard at the end in 614. Far be it from me, God forbid, may it never be that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boasting in the cross in the Greco-Roman world was just not done. Of course, Roman high society knew that crucifixion, that threat of crucifixion, that brutal, humiliating torture was one of the ways that Rome kept its iron boot on the necks of its subject peoples, but you didn't talk about that in polite society. And of course, Paul, from his Jewish background, is very much aware of that passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, that talks about a person, Deuteronomy, after execution, being hanged on a tree as a sign of being cursed by God and the command that that executed, cursed criminal be brought down from the tree before nightfall. Cursed by God. In fact, we know that Paul knows of that verse because he quotes it in Galatians 3, 13. And he says, Jesus went through that curse, not for himself, but for us. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce explains what makes the cross such a scandalon, stumbling stone. Comes across into English as scandalous. Not bad, actually, not bad. 
something that people trip over because it's so offensive. Bruce comments on Paul's use of that term for the cross in Galatians 5, 11, in this way. He says, the scandalon of the cross for Jews lay in the curse which it involved for one who was hanged on it, that one who died such a death should be proclaimed as Lord in Christ was intolerable. In the eyes of Gentiles, the idea that salvation depended on one who had neither the wit nor the power to save himself from so disreputable a death was the height of folly. Well, that's the ancient world. But then, Bruce in his commentary zooms in on us today. He says there's a more general scandalon attached to the cross, one of which Paul is probably thinking here. It cuts the ground from under every thought of personal achievement or merit where God's salvation is in view. To be shut up to receiving salvation from the crucified one, if it is to be received at all, is an affront to all notions of proper self-pride and self-help. And for many people, this remains a major stumbling block in the gospel of Christ crucified. If I can make some small contribution, something even so small as accepting circumcision, then my self-esteem is uninjured. I think Bruce has put his finger on the real offense of the cross. But Paul says, I boast in that cross. In fact, he says in chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live as a separate, independent individual before God, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is essentially saying is the cross of Christ unmasks the reality behind my efforts at self-righteous self-justification. It shows me, Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, as to the, the law pronounced by my colleagues blameless, Circumcised at the right time on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, all my credentials, it pronounces me a law-violating, covenant-breaking, curse-deserving criminal because it says that's what I deserve. What Jesus got, I deserve. Of course, Paul hadn't seen himself that way before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, before he came face to face with righteousness incarnate. But suddenly he realized, in the presence of the glory of Jesus, the Messiah, whose name he'd tried to blot out, he realized that all of his resume of righteousness was ugly and offensive to God. You can read a little bit about that in Philippians 3. We don't have time to look at Philippians 3 right now, but he gives us that credentials. Paul's unmasked. Paul's unmasked. In one of the Peter Wimsey murder mysteries, Thrones Dominations, started by Dorothy Sayers and completed after her death by another author, Jill Peyton Walsh, Lord Peter, I don't know if you know Lord Peter, he's kind of appears to be flighty and insignificant and irresponsible because he's the second son of an English noble family. Uh, people don't take him very seriously, uh, and including the woman he saves from the gallows by showing that she's not the one who murdered her lover, Harriet Vane, uh, and, and he tries to woo and win her, and first she doesn't trust men, she's had a rough life, but finally 
he wins her and they are married and then they come back from their honeymoon, their busman's honeymoon, to one more murder mystery called Thrones Dominations. Toward the end of it, Lord Peter turns to Harriet, his wife, and he says, you have unmasked me, but loved me all the same. Isn't that beautiful? I think any husband who knows what his wife has put up with could say that to your wife from time to time. You have unmasked me, you know me, but you still love me anyway. But even that, you know, what Paul is saying even more profoundly about Christ, he's unmasked me and loved me all the same. The cross of Christ, the cross of Christ shows that my pursuit of self-salvation is an utter dead end. In fact, it made me a persecutor of the church. That was the thing that Paul kept coming back to again and again in his narratives. Here, Philippians 3, 1 Timothy 1, I persecuted the church. Sometimes it shows his zeal for God, misguided zeal, but I was so zealous I wanted to blot out the church that was preaching Jesus as Messiah, a crucified, cursed one as Messiah. And then sometimes, obviously, he also looks back and he says, that shows the height of my arrogant rebellion. But I was shown mercy because God made me an object of mercy. I deserved curse and I received grace. I was made merciful. And so here, this most surprising missionary to the Gentiles, the one who before Jesus entered his life would have kept his distance from all those dirty pagans, spiritually dirty pagans, he's the one that God sends out among those spiritually dirty pagans to announce that the blessings of Abraham comes to everybody, everybody who rests and trusts in Jesus Christ. Paul is irrefutable evidence that the road of self-righteousness is a dead end, but the road of simple trusting in Jesus is all that we need. It brings us home. No one is so bad they don't need the cross. No one is so good. No one is so good that they don't need the cross. Not even Saul, he needs the cross. No one is so bad that they're beyond the reach of the grace of the cross. We need both. One of my favorite Luther quotes, it's a little long, but it is so good because I think it searches our hearts. Now, Luther knows that he can't be good enough to please God. But he says, I sometimes forget it. In a sermon on the sum of the Christian life preached almost two decades after he began to really get the gospel, which may not have actually been in 1517, maybe 1819, we're not sure. Luther says this, he says, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and to say, after all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take this into account. We even want to haggle with God to make him regard our life, but it cannot be done. With men you may boast, I've done the best I could toward everyone, and if anything is lacking, I'll still try to make recompense. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. But, this is the part that I think is especially transparent and honest and humbling to all of us, but how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man who all his life has been mired in works righteousness to pull himself out of it and with all his heart rise up through faith in the one mediator. 
I myself, this is Luther, I myself have been preaching and cultivating it for almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet I know that this is what I should and must do. The gospel, the cross, unmasks us. No reason to hold up our facades. No reason to boast. No reason to be fearful that other people might know us. The cross tells us, tells everybody the worst about us because it says we deserve this. But it also tells us about a, a God who has unmasked us and has loved us all the same in the cross of Christ. It unmasks our sin and shame, but it displays God's mercy in such wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, lustrous colors. Well, that's for next time mostly, right? Embraced by grace. Come back in a few weeks. Uh, I just wanted to unmask us today. Uh, but that's important. We need that. Uh, because then we'll, sweet, we'll taste how sweet the water of God's embrace of love and mercy in the cross really is. Let's close in prayer. Father, Father, how thankful we can call you Father. Your beloved son in the Garden of Gethsemane cried out, Abba, Father, if this cup can pass from me without my drinking it, this cup of curse, this cup of wrath, that cup which he did not deserve but every one of us does, your son went to the cross, to the curse of the tree for us. And that shows us what we deserve, but it also shows us what you give. Your grace, your mercy, your amazing love. Father, may the gospel set us free from the fear of being known by others. May the gospel set us free from our temptation to put up masks and claim to be something we're not. May the gospel set us free to serve others in love, in response to the love that you've showered upon us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.